up everybody my name is mj and you're listening to the mtg in quarantine podcast as usual before we begin i'd like to give a quick shout out to my local game store guardian games find guardian games on the web at ggportland.com i'd also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to all the awesome people who support me over at patreon.com slash mtg in quarantine it's a huge round of thank yous to mr big Benz, anomaly nick s frugal brutal jen of the filthy mtg casuals and coach jro for supporting the show if you'd like to help support the show and help me make more awesome content, head on over to patreon.com slash MTG in Quarantine for more information. And today's episode of the MTG in Quarantine podcast, we are back on our Noah Brewer series where I bring awesome members of the community and other content creators onto the show to talk about how they build their personal EDH decks. But I think this is going to be a first in the, in the amazing guest I have on today is actually going to be talking more about CDH than casual EDH. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest for today, introducing Skylar. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, MJ. Uh, it's really great to be here and talking about brewing from a CDH perspective, which I feel like is something we, even as a CDH community, don't talk about enough. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like you know, for me is, is, you know, really getting more into CDH. Still as a fairly newish player, it really helps me, if nothing else, be able to really hear how others evaluate cards evaluate strategies etc etc and then i can use that information to help my own evaluation so it's it's extremely useful information yeah definitely all right so yeah we're i'm just gonna ask a couple of questions we're just gonna go through your building process as usual from the first steps through the deck construction and then to getting your first hundred cards making some changes etc etc and then we're gonna end with the super secret that's not really super secret but sounds cool bonus question at the end of the episode so if you're ready there, Skylar, I'm going to get started with the first question. And again, I, I do want to make a little bit of a disclaimer here for the folks out there listening, is that CDH is a very different form of card evaluation than a lot of casual EDH decks. So I'm going to go at this a little bit differently than I would for a normal episode. Again, I just wanted to, to preface that a little bit before we got started here. Anyway, Skylar, your first question is this. Obviously, I ask a lot of people when they come on the show whether they choose a 99 first or you like a theme first or if they choose a commander to get their deck building started off with. Since CDH, you pretty much have a small cadre of commanders that are quote-unquote viable or you know really give you kind of that CDH power scale. What are you looking for in a specific commander or partner commanders that really entices you to build a deck? Yeah, so, like, um, I feel like it's necessary for me to explain some of the CDH decks I played just a little bit, just to, like, yep. have them out there. Um, I started with Rurikthar, um, and that was really great. Uh, it was my main deck for a while. From there, I was playing Toxerol, and then I started playing a bunch of, like, Rogue Brews that I started making of my own to try to fill out, like, what I wanted, what I wanted to do, like, cool things that I feel like uh, with the right 
or with the right or like a strong enough shell were at least viable in games if not like full-blown cdh tier one stuff at least fringe cdh where i could play casually competitive with my friends but i was still pushing as much as i could do but um from anything from Rurikthar to Kark and Sakashima, from Najila to Toxel, from Jota the Unifier to Tavesh Krom, I've played it. Um, I've played Gitrog. I've I've done it. I've done the things. I've done the hard things in CDH, which is play Gitrog and play Stacks. Um, so what I typically start with is I will wait until inspiration hits, or I will see uh, an archetype or some sort of strategy that I personally have not played or am interested in playing and try to craft around that. So for like talks or whenever it was spoiled, I was like, wow, this is really great. It is great. Like a board advantage and board presence and board control while also being in blue black, allowing for demonic consultation, Thassa's Oracle and counter spells and removal. Um, Rurikthar was a piece that allowed me to tempo games and prevent uh, as many turbo ad nauseums or storms decks as, as I could. Uh, that fell by the wayside as I started playing those decks myself. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll find a strat, I'll find a card, I'll find a commander that I think is like fun, unique, and strong. Uh, typically for the most part, if I'm brewing something for myself, uh, the most, I guess, like on meta thing that I've root personally is my Tavesh Krom list, which is just your typical Grixis Turbo Ad Nauseum Underworld Breach shell. Um, I don't know if everyone knows about these things, but you know, maybe people can look up the cards. They're really cool. Uh, Underworld Breach is probably one of the coolest cards that has ever existed. It was banned in Legacy super fast. Uh, number one CDH win con. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so whenever I'm brewing a deck, um, what I do first is I start with my land base. I put in all ten. I put as many fetches as fit in the colors. Then I will put on to my trudels, shocks, battle bond lands of applicable, and then just try to fill in. Typically, I'm playing decks with black, so I'm playing a tainted packed mana base. So one of each land. Uh, sometimes basics make it in there. Maybe one or two basics just in case, because assassin's trophy is a card mm-hmm. and basic lands are fetchable off of fetch lands so uh i start with the lands um i move into artifacts i try to get the mana base first like the fast mana the lotuses the petals all those things like you get the mana base first and that's typically not how a lot of people do it from what i hear but like if i get my mana base secured away i can brew the entire rest of my deck keeping that mana base in mind and if i need to adjust it it's easier to adjust the mana base for me as i go on instead of brewing this deck and then like all right i gotta figure out the mana for sure Um, for sure yeah i mean i think at least in my experience doing a little bit of cdh brewing on the side i always do the exact same thing you do i always basically throw in you know quote-unquote staples i hate saying staples but in cdh it's actually very true um you know, your usual six to seven rocks that you're going to have in pretty much every deck unless, you know, you're doing some weird corner case. But, yeah, you're going to run all of those. You're going to run pretty much the same lands. So, I mean, to the listeners out there, it's going to sound like we're running a lot of the same cards in CDH, and that's true in a way, is that we're trying to run the most powerful, most efficient cards here. It's just trying to find that right combination that really works with your deck. I think that's really the 
the little bit of uh, showing your preference as a CDH Brewer is just kind of figuring out exactly which combination of these super busted cards you want to throw in there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, like if you're playing a more sexy artifact hate shell, you're not going to be playing as many of the Turbo Rocks, but, like, you'll probably still play, like, a Mox Diamond, a Mana Crypt, Soul Ring, things of yeah. that nature, things that, like go from zero to multiple or one to multiple amounts of mana that just allow you to quickly apply these stacks pieces. Like, mm -hmm. it's very funny to be like, land mana crypt Trinosphere, uh, because you have your mana crypt, and now you've made everyone else's mana crypt cost three mana. You've effectively mm -hmm. lengthened the game by an astronomical amount if you're playing a stacks deck and drop a Trinosphere, which yep. is probably one of the, like, the best things you can do if you're playing fast mana and stacks. Um, but after I get my mana base very situated, I typically will move on to what do I want my main win condition to be. Typically, that is something like Thassa's Oracle or Kiki Jiki or something along those lines, something that's efficient, effective, and is um, you have to react and interact with it in a unique way that makes it harder. Like, you have to be playing removal, be that a kill spell, exile, or a bounce spell, or like a stifle effect, which aren't very common. I only play one in one of my decks, and that's just because people try to kill Chrom players with their Thosses or Clone the Stack by making the Chrom player draw a card. So you can stifle your own Chrom trigger. I've done it twice now. It's really funny. The reactions you get out of a pod if you stifle your own Chrom trigger, fantastic. It's worth it just to play that one blue spell that's kind of hyper niche. Um, but I get my main win con, and then I move on to interaction. I want those forces, the force of will, the force of negation. If I'm in green, the force of vigor. Um, typically, I will also put in Mindbreak Trap, because mm -hmm. I believe Mindbreak Trap is probably one of the best counter spells we have, just because it says exile any number of target spells, and it's free if they've cast three or more spells, which is very common for most edh decks and mm -hmm. it exiling spells means you can handle storm it means you can also uh cut down on the fuel for an under underworld breach later because every card casted countered in the yard is just breach fuel for those decks um mind break trap is just also really good because it's funny. You get someone with it, and they're like, yeah, I did cast three spells. I, I brought this on myself. It, it only ever feels bad to have Mind Break Trap if there's a rule of law in play mm -hmm. or someone isn't casting spells to take game action. Yeah, I I think with Mind Break Trap, it's like it's still a fairly good card to even have if someone had just cast one spell. As long as you kind of have some weird end step stuff going on, you know, people are casting. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of some Tainted Pacts or just something on an end step. You can just yeah, respond like, to that because again, yeah, it's just and as long as an opponent has cast three or more spells, which kind of counts everyone. Yeah, so like if one opponent has casted three spells, you got it, and you can hit anyone's spells from there. So say like you're on an end step, and like someone has attempted a win, uh, one per that person if they've casted three or more spells, and anyone goes for like an end step tutor, like say just for example, uh, you're playing against Karkashima, Najila and blue farm and you're playing some grixis deck uh or maybe even a bant control deck because those exist Holen is a thing or rego if you're uh uh on the clout farm um but like say 
I don't know, some, that cart player has been stopped somehow. Somehow you've stopped the cart player. Congratulations. But say the only counter spell you have in your hand is Mindbreak Trap. Najila goes to cast uh, Eladamri's Call. They are more than likely going to get Derevi. Now, there's a chance that they will draw Derevi. There's a chance they have another counter. But if you're like, I can't, if you can't free cast your mind or hard cast your mind break trap, this Najila player may just be winning. So you can use your mind break trap to stop a tutor. It's not always the best idea to stop a tutor, but if they're casting a creature tutor and you don't have a creature counter spell, you can hit the tutor and. sometimes it's best to get rid of threats before they're ever a threat. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've now talked about the lands, the artifacts, and the counter suite. Um, So effectively, I guess we've talked about 50 to 60% of the deck just right there, especially if you're playing blue. If you're not playing blue, this equation is obviously going to be very different because, you know, blue obviously has virtually all the counter spells. So Mm -hmm. let's not kid ourselves. So... Once we have that base, whether it's very counterspell heavy, whether you're playing blue, or whether it's, you know, just some additional pieces if you're playing a non-blue deck, what basically goes into that last 40 to 50% of the deck? This is effectively, you have just the meat and potatoes of the deck, for, you know, for, for lack of a better term. What exactly are you looking to try to do, and how much depth do you try to put in in your card selection? I mean, in, in other words... How many redundant pieces do you want to have in there to try to make sure that your deck can do the thing as reliably as possible? Yeah, so with this, um, it's best prefaced. Um, if you're in black, then you're playing every unconditional tutor that you can reasonably play um, up to and including Grim Tutor. And some people are now playing Dark Petition because that usually works out to a demonic tutor that gives you three black. I mean, you pay five, but you get the three back. It kind of fuels Storm. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen Dark Petition mainly with Crick and other like... Mono black. black. Yeah, Yeah, mono black, red black, black white. Like those low color black decks that don't have access to the other tutors but are still trying to run more unconditional tutors. Mm -hmm. Um, So outside of that, like the redundancy is tutors. As many as you can play, if you're in green, you are going to want your worldly tutors, your shared summons, like summoners packed, like you got to get your tutors in there because if you have tutors in there, those are spells that you can use to uh, reduce the amount of innate redundancy that your deck will need. Typically, if I'm doing something that has redundant pieces, I try to have one piece of redundancy because if you include three, four pieces of redundancy, it might not be that noticeable in the short term, but like if you... I'm just going to use Kiki Jiki in, for example, because it's the like mm-hmm. biggest thing for redundancy that I've played the most. So typically within Kiki Jiki decks, you want, in my opinion, two to three creatures that combo with it, combo with them in different ways. So I would play Coercive Recruiter because Coercive Recruiter with Kiki Jiki will play through creatures enter the battlefield tapped effect because Coercive Recruiter goes exponential with Kiki Jiki because each Coercive Recruiter triggers off of each other Coercive Recruiter also entering the battlefield. Um, then I will play like Combat Celebrant or something else that is like unique 
amongst it, not just like high status guide, but combat settlement specifically because it allows you to play through if someone is like weirdly sandbagging like uh uh settle the wreckage which i've seen like three times which is the only reason i play but combat celebrant attacking one at a time is like that very methodical goto type of win with kiki jiki where you swing one at a time and even if they do kill that one you have another one and then another one and then another one so unless they have a way to have an indestructible blocker you've got there that redundancy is very good it's not bogging your deck down with too many redundant pieces, making the average card quality of your deck and the things that you draw lesser by leaning in towards this one strategy and removing your ability to pivot. Um, within all that as well, uh, redundancy is good, but too much redundancy makes your deck stagnant, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think that what you're touching on here really, again, goes back to exactly which deck you're trying to run. Obviously, certain decks, um, I, again, I look more at the monocolored decks. I'm going to utilize, like, my, my favorite or one of my favorite decks, Goto Bandit Warlord, which wants to try to find as many ways to be able to equip Helm on the host as possible. So you're running five, six, seven cards deep trying to do that thing. Whereas your decks there, Skylar, especially your three-color breach piles, four-color, five-color decks, etc. like that, they don't necessarily need that same level, I, I guess, of redundancy because what you're trying to do can work in so many different ways or you have multiple-layered combos that can work. So you can just kind of, you know, MacGyver, for lack of a better term, your win condition versus other decks which kind of have to do the one thing. Yeah, it's... Yeah, so... Goto is, oh, I love Goto. I love seeing Goto play. Uh, Jitos, the main the main mm -hmm. Goto player, play against. I love playing against them every time because it's either I'm practicing mulligans, literally meaning Tony is winning within turn one or two, or I'm just seeing this the most complicated puzzle that I've ever seen anyone pull off for a Goto win. And it's always these weird big mana spells, these like, what is considered to be unefficient mana rocks like Thran Dynamo or things of that nature that just allow you to invest your mana because Goto, as you know, MJ, mm -hmm. is a very mana-intensive win on that turn. Up yep. to 11 mana if you don't have your Hammer of Nazan or, like, a Magnetic Theft. Mm -hmm. But, oh, I love seeing Goto. And, like, Goto is... One of those decks where it's like easy to learn, hard to master, that I think is really beneficial for people who want to play the same deck that wins the same way, but has a thousand different paths to get there. And every time you discover a new one, every time you're put into a harder situation, every time you're put into a way of, well, how the hell do I win with Goto? You have either, you either accept and the hardest thing about being a CDH brewer and player is accepting that sometimes you do just win. Sometimes your opponents just have it. They have every piece of protection. They have everything they need. And that's part of being playing competitively. You just accept that mm -hmm. sometimes you lose. But yep. Goto, oh, Goto. I love yeah. it. I've never played it. It doesn't call to me, but I love playing against it. Not only is it fun... It, I feel like I'm a better player each time, and I see something new that I've not seen Goto do. Oh, totally. I, just as a, again, as an aside here, since it is your episode, but yeah, as an aside here, as a fairly experienced Goto player, it's crazy some of the different things I've had to do for wins. I obviously have talked about 
my turn one win uh, when I totally bodied Allen for mental misplay um, back at Bellevue last year on turn one before he even got a turn in the fourth seat. Um, I, I literally had every piece I needed in my hand with the magnetic theft. So yeah. that was just and no lands, no nothing, just, you know, run Mana Crypt, Simeon Spirit Guide, Jessica's Will, Godo, Magnetic Theft. There you oh go. Oh my gosh, MJ, that is one of the hottest Godo wins I've ever heard in my life. Oh yeah, I I, I got a picture and everything. I, I can show you that later. But yeah, it yeah, or I, I remember there being a two hour game where everyone was super stacked out and then I somehow, you know, we're we're going like turn twenty at that point, because it's literally everyone's just stuck. I've got my Trinosphere on the board. You know, we have other stacks pieces just sitting there, just sit, 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 sit. A couple of people just finally die in the game. And then it's just, okay, finally get out from underneath that. My Trinosphere isn't bothering me. Drop Goto, Hammer, Helm, there you go. And it's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just it, so many, Goto can win so many different ways. But again, it requires so much of that redundancy to be able to work. Whereas, again, a lot of the decks that are three colors don't necessarily need that kind of redundancy. And I think that's really important to Hammer, you know, Hammer Home. Uh, pun intended here um for, for the listeners is that it's really gonna depend on the exact deck you're gonna try to try to build but yeah again we're going off on a fun little tangent here but i'm gonna kind of reel things back in here so anyway once we've basically figured out all the win cons all the important just meat of the deck what do you do with it i mean what are you looking for in the play testing phases you get those first couple of couple of games in and are you the kind of person who is willing to make changes almost immediately unless you see like a, a serious flaw or are you going to just kind of give it 10, 12, 15 games before you start trying to make a few changes if his certain cards just aren't working out? Uh, this is where I joke and say I'm built different, uh, but it's kind of um, so one thing that I think benefits me a lot, and this is going to be a small little tangent. I'm just mm -hmm. going to mention it and brush on it is I play a lot of Tetris and that might not make sense, but Tetris has been shown to increase neuroplasticity and the efficiency of which the brain can think. Most of my playtesting is two or three friends or I just heavily goldfish the deck or weirdly enough, I just stare at it. I just stare at my deck list and I look, um, this also goes back to my broom philosophy. What I do is I never put ever, ever, never, ever, regardless of power level, archetype, or whatever, more than 100 cards in my deck list. I find that if you put more than 100 cards, you always end up in that space of, well, what the fuck do I cut? Oh, sorry, can I swear? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's fine. Okay, sorry. I should have asked first. Though. But yeah. Uh, yeah, like, what what the hell do I cut? What do I do? Because uh, if you put yourself in that situation, it's a lot harder to fight your way out of that than if you just set this hard limit of, a hundred cards, no more. A hundred cards. Because when you hit that hundred cards, you're like, well, I really want this thing. It requires you to look at the deck. It requires you to see what is arguably the least efficient, the least powerful, the least necessary pieces of your deck. And then put those things that are unnecessary, like... Oh, I really want this synergistic piece, but it would require me to cut a piece of removal. Well, you have to ask yourself, is that one extra piece of removal or interaction more valuable or viable than that synergistic piece? 
And then you have to look at that synergistic piece and look at it and be like, well, how is this synergizing? Is the way it's synergizing, is this going to be powerful and applicable within the first three turns of the game if I draw it? And typically you don't want something that isn't going to be relevant and impactful as soon as you play it because you want that immediate result. You don't want to play something that's going to have three turns to pay off because the game could be over within the same turn cycle. Mm -hmm. So looking at your deck list and goldfishing it, um, just to get a general feel before you take it out and it's maiden voyage on games is something I do uh, a lot for every deck that I ever play. It's goldfishing. Uh, sometimes I'll have a friend that I trust and I know come and join me in a spell table and have them uh, go over mulligans with me and like the first few turns and how it plays out as in like I have telepathy where I would just have my hand on build on the hand revealed and then I will just be like all right well here's how we go this here's what I'm thinking here's this and just have someone who I feel is on par or a better player with me who is of equal or higher knowledge of the game and the meta state of CDH with me that way I'm not um training alone I'm not reinforcing my own bad habits I'm not reinforcing my own um biases whenever I'm playing these decks because having a friend who knows just as much as you do giving you that little bit of pushback I mean like I don't know if this is it I don't know if this is what we need to do sometimes it can help you find these new nice cards that you know are great because within cdh we might be playing edh and we might have the same twenty-seven thousand card pool but realistically we're only playing about 1200 to 1500 of those cards total mm -hmm. and those are just like the most powerful cards within magic's history that we're able to play and aren't banned in our format yeah so like and, and it's really cool to to hear you mention the 1200 cards because again i think a couple of years ago we were talking about maybe just like five six hundred cards the fact we've already doubled the size of the viable card pool in cdh is already pretty cool and with all these new decks coming out again i i feel kind of remiss if i don't mention the new hot tech and uh, slicer right now just kind of as the poster child for this in the last few months here um I think that that really demonstrates how many more cards are finally getting up into that echelon, which weren't there before. And again, I'm always going to point out things like Magda and uh, the deck I piloted at Silicon Dynasty, Yuriko especially, for playing a lot of cards which normally aren't competitively viable, but in the right shell can do the right thing. So it's really cool to see uh, you know, a little bit more variance just in the number of cards in our format, even though we're still doing the, the most powerful things possible. Yeah, like I love that variance. Um, I am at both states, always interested in what can be CDH, but also a big proponent of just play a good established deck. There's nothing wrong with playing a good established deck. Mm -hmm. And I think the large disconnect that we have from EDH to CDH, not only as brewers but players, is that a lot of people want to express themselves and play these unique decks but within cdh it's more of i want to play the strongest thing mm -hmm. and the strongest thing and a unique thing are not mutually exclusive like 
the reason Magda does well and the reason Slicer does well, one, they have this advantage of people not always being cognizant of how they win mm -hmm. because usually the way we see people win in CDH are things like Ad Nauseam, Underworld Breach, and Thassa's Oracle. Yep. So we have this low color thing that only plays one of those cards that is able to show up to a tournament and win and or do well it's really cool it's like i might have frustrations or not understand hype besides certain legends that are now being bolstered up and put in the same echelon but it's great like i don't have to agree with all of these like i love seeing my friends be like look at this new deck it's really weird it does this cool thing that i like that i find interesting and still allows me to play this hyper competitive niche format with mm -hmm. my friends yeah, that, that's really fun for me. Again, I, I know I mentioned this to listeners a few times, is I've been kind of just playing around with some more niche CDH-like or maybe more fringe decks just because it's a great test for me to see how far I've come as a CDH brewer. And I'm, you know, I'm just trying some different strategies. Are the decks going to work? Probably not. But, you know, you got to try first. But again, I play Goto. I'm starting to play Yuriko now, even though I'm still really not very good at it. But, I mean, I'm still playing. I'm... I'm doing my time with the established decks too. So it's just like, it's, it's kind of a nice departure sometimes to, to be able to go to some of my more janky stuff versus, you know, the established decks, but it's not like I'm, you know, not trying to play competitively either. I'm still just trying to find that good balance, whatever works for me. And I think that's really important for the list for you, all of you, the listeners out there is you got to kind of find that comfort zone with CDH is that you're going to play established decks. It definitely helps to build established decks and play established decks to really learn the meta and then over time, you can start trying to find those ways to express yourself. Like, uh, again, with you, Skylar, you started with Rorikthar, you've switched over to a Grixis shell, but not necessarily the Grixis shell a lot of people think of um, when they think CDH. Oh, my God. Do I get to talk about Tevesh Krom now? Yes, please. Okay. So, Tevesh Krom, uh, I... Uh... CDH, I might have started with Gruul and like the most backbreaking stacks piece that probably exists within the entirety of Magic. But before that, I did play, I got the Wizards precon and I played a weird uh, Infinite Turns cast list. And this really inspired my love of Grixis because you have counterspells, removal, explosivity, redundancy, and resiliency that just Grixis just has based on its color identity. So whenever I was like, I want to play these Turbo Grixis Ad Nauseam Underworld Breach Shells because I see my friends who are really good pilots, really good brewers, have their own versions and this like massive like breadth of like Grixis decks that exist from Kess to Rograx Silas Wren to Anala to malcolm vile smasher mm -hmm. uh these grixis decks for a large part probably share about 80 percent of the same cards if not more but the way i wanted to build my grixis deck the deck that i wanted to play for grixis was i wanted it to be as relevant and viable turn one with my commanders like a turn one Krom or turn one tavesh up to the mid game like Tavesh is a great value engine. You can draw an extra two cards a turn, up to three cards a turn. You can create bodies that allow you to block. Um, you can... Uh, and the ultimate is just taking everyone's commander, be it in the zone or on the battlefield. Have you ever actually been able to activate that before? Twice. Okay. <laughs> uh, twice. Uh, one time I was playing against someone who was playing my own Rurikthar deck. It was very funny. Ha ha. 
uh, shout out to Scylla, who uh, was playing my Thar deck. And, um, yeah, uh, I wanted commanders that could grind for value in the mid-range, but also were just good. Like, Krom is probably, arguably, the best overall partner commander, despite being at five mana, simply because Krom can draw up to... 12 different cards within a turn cycle because you can get three cards on each turn mm -hmm. from where if your opponents are all casting two cards yep. so because it's just any opponent right yeah just any opponent yep. whenever an opponent casts their second spell you get a card uh so if they're you're playing a bunch of like decks or uh gets a bunch of decks where someone has like ristic studies mystic remorse or any other things that are allowing them to draw cards and up to and including another crom and everyone's interacting you're just getting that passive value, and I believe that kind of falls into these ideas of what is parasitic, where you're just gaining value off of your opponent's taking game actions. But why not? If your opponent is taking game actions and you reap from that, you get one or two, one of two benefits. You either get to draw cards or get some sort of value, or your opponent takes less game actions. Regardless, mm -hmm. you are benefiting of outside of either of those things yeah for sure uh, again if the listeners out there did listen to my amazing episode with the one and only cyrus from mental misplay the other half of mental misplay obviously um we did talk a lot about why Krom and timna are such a potent combo just because you have that mid-range grind ability to just draw a boatload of cards off your commanders so the ability for you skylar to be able to then basically replace timna with in some ways maybe a better version, again, depending on exactly what you're trying to do with Tevish Zot, um, definitely demonstrates just how powerful Krom is, is that you don't need Timna to make Krom powerful. Krom is just already powerful. You're you're just kind of changing up what you need to do by, in some ways, almost making it a little bit more flexible, I think, with uh, mm -hmm. versus Timna. You're just not adding white, but you're getting around that because Tevish builds the bodies too. So it's yeah. a slightly different approach to this problem, but again, Krom is just that powerful that you can afford to swap out the partner and you just don't lose any momentum. Yeah, so like, the main reason I play Tevesh and the reason I really put this Grixis deck together is I wanted to play a deck with Displacer Kitten because mm. I'm a, I got into Magic uh, around after Cal, uh, around the Kaladesh Eldritch Moon era, and I never had a Paradox Engine, but I the person who taught me how to play had this black and blue Infect deck that won from Paradox Engine and Contagion Engine mm. and just proliferating poison counters, and it was one of the coolest decks I've ever played against. I'm still super, like fond of that friend and like thankful for like making me play against these alternative win cons that like a lot of people hate for some reason mm. but like there's a thousand paths to victory pick one uh, sure i mean it, it, but, uh, i i pulled the paradox engine last year it's like oh man yeah, <laughs> it's just like, going in my bulk bin yeah like displacer kitten it's like i want to play this in a grixis deck because i need blue for the kitten i want black for the tutors and i want red because i want to flicker dockside extortionist to yep. manually storm and gives you so breach just, lines too yeah yeah i just came to tevesh Krom because tevesh being a planeswalker who gets to activate whenever he is a new object just allowed me to manually storm with displacer kitten there's mm -hmm. nothing like casting a spell and be like flicker to vesh make two thralls cast another like rock eat thralls drawing cards to allow you to fuel your storm play something flicker dockside get a bunch of mana to fuel your storm and it's just this i feel like it does what we want for grixis i have card velocity i have card quality i have storm i have a weird way to interact 
and you just get this acceleration and this critical mass that just becomes impossible to deal with. Like within my playing with power games where I play Tveshkrom, there's an instance where I swan song my own underworld breach to flicker a soul ring mm-hmm. to cast ad nauseum at inner speed at instant speed. Uh, to get a force of will for an endurance that is targeting me with my underworld breach on the stack. Yep. And honestly, one of my favorite plays I've ever made, because obviously it's cool as heck, but also it just shows the resiliency and how you are rewarded for understanding your deck, what things are going on, and what you're doing. And I feel like as a CDH brewer playing the decks that i brew i have an advantage because i know why every piece is in this deck i know how every piece in this deck interacts with each other and in what way and what sequence i need to play them every time i draw them and that's not to say a pilot who picks up my deck will have less advantages it's just that i innately have that whenever i pick it up i know every card in there i know what it's doing I know what it needs to do. And I think a lot of pilots would be behooved to try to brew. And if you're not good at brewing, that's fine. You can be a good pilot and a phenomenal player without explicitly being a good brewer and vice versa. You can be a phenomenal brewer and not ever, ever have to play EDH. There's nothing wrong with that. If you just want to brew, these weird decks with these weird doomsday piles and you <laughs> just want to look at them and goldfish them and moxie do it there's nothing wrong with that if you want to brew your own deck you're like wow i really love kiki jiki and playing jund i want to play a deck that just plays kiki jiki in jund do it uh cdh while we are uh espousing efficiency redundancy and resiliency and speed and power that doesn't mean that you can't just go figure full it out. ham right yeah yeah exactly that doesn't mean you can't experiment there is a decent amount of fucking around and finding out for a while people weren't that high on chrome because chrome costs five mana now we do live in a jeweled lotus meta to where mm. we can play these more impactful fast spells but for a while people were like when they were playing timna they were playing thrasios because they were both two to three mana and thrasios was a mana outlet um, nowadays, our uh, mid-range decks are as fast as what turbo decks were several years ago. Our stacks decks are faster than what mid-range decks were. Like, we're now in this part where we're slowing down and balancing out. But like, I think getting more brewers on who are willing to learn the CDH metagame, learn what makes a deck good within CDH. Uh, just here brewing more decks fucking around and finding out mm-hmm. getting decks on the brewer's corner trying to get decks on the database trying and testing these brews there's nothing wrong with it there's even streams that are for cdh like sylvan scholars yeah i was just how- about to bring them up there is uh yeah. again let's see you've been a guest on there i recently guested on there um I, yeah. I, again we yeah we, we can totally talk about just some of the, the experience on yeah, that later yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and and yeah and actually uh, just a side note is I did reach out to Bear about uh, getting the Sylvan Scholars on the show at some point to, to talk nice. about that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that sort of episode because those guys are great. And mm-hmm. I've definitely learned a lot the couple of times I've been on there. So, yeah, just really cool for you, for you to shout, shout them out there, Skylar. It was definitely yeah. a good include. 
Yeah, I love them. I adore Bear and Justin. Trenton Trent and I are really, really close friends who talk nearly every day. Uh, Bear is this wonderful, wonderful, positive person who is very funny and is committed to learning. And, you know, Bear will call out whenever he realizes that he has misplayed, made a mistake, or in some way uh, allowed another player to win the game. Yep. And I think that's a good, like, philosophy that he has for his stream of, well, we're here to learn. We're here to experiment. You know, we're not here to, you know, probably play at like a comp REL event, but we're here to, you know, it's beginner friendly. We're here to increase our good habits, increase the way we understand without the pressure. You know, there is pressure for, you know, to play well because Justin's a good, strong player who's been playing for a while and plays Legacy. So he's a strong, dominating presence when he's on. Triton playing both Savala and Kess has a good idea of both not only the creature-based mid-range, but also the Grixis Turbo. And Bear plays Blue Farm, like, all the time. So, like, Bear knows. Bear knows how it is for that mid-range or explosive play. So, like, they're all really good players. Um, if you're interested in CDH and you want a place that is beginner-friendly, that is accepting of mistakes and the trials and tribulations of learning hit up bear claymore on twitter and be like hey i'm interested in learning cdh and would like to come on your show he'll he, he would love to hear from you mm -hmm. if anything you take from the show uh please uh find someone who's accepting of new players and play with them if you're interested in cdh yeah definitely and and again that's something that i've been really trying to harp on a lot just on my show because again i'm fairly new and i've been using these episodes to pick brains of brewers like yourself to help myself learn and you know figure out the meta and it's been very helpful on my end and i'm hoping that the listeners out there if they haven't tried cdh already please at least give it a try. Maybe it isn't for you, but that's not me to say. That's not for Skylar to say. That's for you to say, ultimately. We want to just be a welcoming environment to let you come in, give something a try, and hopefully it sticks. If it doesn't, that's cool. But we we want to get people in there, and yeah, it's, it's a fun little space to be in. And the fact that we're starting to see more movement towards uh, newbie-friendly content, and uh, especially like with the Sylvan Scholar stream, is, is amazing. Yeah, um, just one more resource if you're also learning out. Yeah. Uh, my friend Lamora's Cards, uh, yep. who's also in your server. Just had him post. on the show. Uh, maybe It depends on when I get this released, but he yeah. will be on an upcoming show at some point here or or has been recently released, depending on when the show goes up. So no guarantees, <laughs> yeah. but either when you're listening to this, it will be upcoming or it has already happened. But either way, it'll be fairly quickly uploaded or has been uploaded for you know, that makes zero sense but you know again i don't know my schedule is but whatever but yeah matthew's great yeah. had him on a show it was a really good episode yeah he uh he has these learn to play videos that brings uh prolific pi pilots and people who have brewed their decks and playing them to come on and talk about them like the winota things of that nature just lamore's cards his learn to play series phenomenal check it out it's great um MJ, is there anything that you need to hear further from me as No, I mean, I mean, basically, Skylar, I think if you're okay with it, I'm going to also advertise this as a learn-to-play uh, Tevish Krom, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay. okay. I can go further with Tevish yeah, Krom. Yeah, so, so, so since, since we're kind of getting a double bonus episode here... Um, Typically, typically, I will ask in those episodes, you know, what what is your win cons? What are some of your key cards, etc.? 
So I guess the real fun question is now, Skylar, now that we kind of know how you built your mana base, built your win cons, built your, your displacer kit engine, what are some of the cool like synergy cards that you've thrown into that list that may not be talked about, but you're just really excited about? All right. So I'm really glad that you asked this specifically. I play a, Rav- a War of the Spark All-Star for draft, uh, Tyrant Scorn. Tyrant Scorn is blue black oh, and has yes. destroy target creature with mana value three or less or return target creature to its owner's hand so the way that this is really good to veshkrom is it works as a dockside doubler or if you have displacer kitten out you can kill say a draineth magistrate a dalvi Voidwalker, a lavinia a thalia anything that is inhabiting or inhibiting your inhibiting your uh way of play your your flow while also, if you have Displacer Kit and Dockside Tavesh, like you try to, you can fuel your storm while removing the hindrances of you. Um, I'm also playing cards like Drown in the Lock, which is another counter spell. It's from Eldrain. Uh, it counters a spell that has a mana value less than uh, the amount of cards in an opponent's library, which in a uh, format like CDH, where we're playing fetch lands, counter spells, and instants or sorceries, cantrips, typically we're trying to counter spells with four or less and it's very common to have four cards within a graveyard by turn one sometimes um borrowing from my experience of playing Clark sakashima i'm playing stern dismissal which removes rule of law enchantments and creatures or other creatures that i need to get rid of i'm also playing fatal push uh mm-hmm. i love fatal push uh not only from playing kaladesh but fatal push allows you to uh when you cast it and you have displacer kitten you fulfill the clause before Fatal Push resolves. Because yes, Fatal so, Push says, yeah. if. Yeah, so uh, that that kitten trigger uh, puts Fatal Push online, or you can sacrifice a land or a treasure, like a fetch land. Because yeah, um, that's if something was removed from the back. Yeah, let's see, it has yeah, the revolt yeah. trigger, so it has, if a permanent is left your battle battlefield under your control this turn, it does the thing. Yep, yep, yeah. um, it's really great. Um, I'm also playing, like, four or five creatures outside of Chrome just because I want most of my deck to uh, win with Displacer Kitten. Um, I need to change out Persist for, like, Animate Dead just because that's another combo piece for Displacer Kitten. Mm-hmm. I'm not playing too many things that are, like, off-off meta. Like, I'm playing Mana Drain. People aren't too high on Mana Drain, but, like, with Mana Drain, you can counter a Winota and then play one black to cast Tevesh Zot. So mm-hmm. it's, pretty, it's pretty neato. Um... And yeah, I'm playing Stifle, like I said, just mm-hmm. because I've stifled like dock sites for 14 treasures. I've stifled the Kinnon activation. I've stifled my own Chrom triggers. Like, Stifle might not be great, but it's not as bad as a lot of people think, and it's fine. And if you want a better Stifle, if you want a Stifle that can't be interacted with, there's Trick Bind. If you want a Stifle that is also a counterspell, there's Tails End, which hits legendary spells. Um, Trickbind and Tails End are both one in a blue, so they're both still pretty highly efficient. Um, I'm not playing uh, cards like Peer into the Abyss that typically are seen within Grexus decks that makes a lot of mana because it's eight mana, I believe. It's seven or eight mana. Seven I don't eight, like yeah. revealing I don't like revealing it off of Adnaz. It always feels bad. Like without Peer into the Abyss, I know I can go down. Uh, like five is my danger zone for ad nauseum instead of eight being my danger zone and then having to keep in track with like mana crypt meaning if you have mana crypt and you're instant speed nauseum you can 
only go down to like 11 compared to going down to eight which mm-hmm. like that's three life but that could be like upwards of six cards sometimes in a nas deck again this is the reason why we chip damage the nas players typically if we're not running nas because we just don't like that kind of stuff um i think the only thing else that i'm playing like deck techie wise that uh or like learn to play wise just to like have that basis is limdal's vault just because i love limdal's vault i love using my life as a resource and getting to look at five cards for one life for each iteration that you do it mm-hmm. is phenomenal and then not only do you get to look at those cards you get to put them in any order you want at instant speed so sure you might not be able to cast your ad nauseum effectively from like 18 life but what you can do is look at uh god 17 different piles of five so that's a 85 cards for 17 life effectively like that's your entire rest of your deck most of the time if you need it to perfectly assemble a pile it's wonderful uh <laughs> um, yes so with, sounds pretty cool yeah so with tevesh Krom, uh mulligan wise what you want is a hand that either on turn one or two plays tevesh or Krom, and typically you'll either want tevesh um if you're in like a pod that's like slower, like if you're playing against like some stacks decks or mid rangey decks that use stacks to slow the game down, you'll want a Tavesh because that makes you bodies. That allows you to protect your Tavesh and get that like um, inevitability online of activating Tavesh. And then if there's commanders you don't want, you activate Tavesh. He puts himself right back onto the field because he dies if his ult is uh, enough to remove all of his loyalty. You put him back into the zone as a state-based action before the ability resolves, and he sees his own ability on the stack as it resolves to put himself back into play. It's really great if you get to ult You, It's very unlikely you will because people don't want you to steal their commanders, turns out. <laughs> but... Uh, we really want to go for like those early, early, early advantage engines like Ristic Studies, Mystic mm-hmm. Remoras. Uh, don't keep your Mystic Remora hands if you don't have a uh, ramp on top of it. Like it, even if it's just a Mox Opal, if you don't have a way to get to more uh, rocks to turn on that Mox Opal, you don't keep your Mystic Remora hands. No matter if you're in first position, if you don't have ramp with your Mystic Remora, it is a trap. Please mulligan it away. Do not keep hands with Thassa's Oracle in them because that is a trap that leads you to think I can have one half of my piece to win the game. We're playing too many counter spells. We're playing Underworld Breach. Please do not keep hands with Thassa's Oracle. Um, your Ride of Flames are very good for creating uh, two to three extra mana because like Ride of Flame, Soul Ring, Ride of Flame into a rock. Like I think one game I played uh, like a Badlands, Ride of Flame, a... Uh, talisman of dominance into a mystic remora and like i won that game on like turn three uh because i just had ramp and then a card draw engine um with tevesh krom um i'm also not playing like other lists like holebreaker horror mind you holebreaker horror can win with tevesh but it has that same energy as uh peer into the abyss of like it's a really big nauset and I want my ad nauseum to be as consistently good as possible because the card quality isn't the same uh, for decks that aren't playing ad nauseum because we have to play these low-costed spells to not die to our ad nauseum. Um, Tevesh Krom is really, really fun. 
there's a bunch of funky stuff that you can do with like spell seeker and like dockside and displacer kit and even if you're just flickering your own mana rocks or flickering your Tavesta storm um it's a really fun deck for me uh i've gotten good feedback from it from other people who've picked it up i would highly recommend proxying it up and trying it if you're into a grixis deck but you don't want to play like kess or rog uh, silas or like vile smasher malcolm um I'm I'm hype on Krom. I think Krom is good, as I've said before. Mm-hmm. I love the. Deck. I had no idea you like Krom. This is I new information Krom. that I've never heard before. I know, <laughs> right? Like I'm not constantly posting about like how great Krom is. God, your body's insane. You didn't even mention the uh, going to Krombat. I mean, come oh on. Oh my gosh, Krombat! I love it. Uh, that's the best reason to play Krom. Look, if any, if you take anything else away other than the beginner friendly stuff. Saying move to Crombat is always a great feeling. Yeah, um, a- a- every time I play my uh, blue farm deck that I am horrible at, and that's why I don't ever play it very much, I still uh, love going to Crombat because that's literally the one thing I know how to do as I figure out the combo lines. So it's still it's still fun to have. And of course, I've got the foil-edged Crom, so I mean, come on. Fun stuff, fun stuff. Yeah, Crom's great, uh, and like... I had a game, oh gosh, where I was uh, practicing for Mox Masters, where I went down to four, and like I was able to cast Tavesh turn one from Dark Ritual Mana Crypt. That's another reason why Tavesh is good. You could just cast them essentially off of like Dark Ritual and any other typical like Celerant, like Mana Vault Mana Crypt. Um, and then the next turn, I on turn two drew a Jeweled Lotus. And I was like, and I had a Lion's Eye Diamond in hand, and I had uh, a Mystical Tutor as my only other card in hand. So before uh, trying to cast Krom, I cast a Mystical Tutor, and it got misstepped. And then I was like, all right, I have no cards in hand. Uh, Lion's Eye Diamond, LED, Krom. And then I had a blue floating. Activate Tavesh to draw two cards. And within those two cards, I draw a Mystic Remora. So now on turn two, I have a Tavesh Svat at seven loyalty. I have a Krom and I have a Mystic Remora mm-hmm. with no cards in hand. But like within on my way to turn three, I drew seven cards. So on my turn three, I had eight cards in hand from going down to four cards as my initial mulligan. Yep. Powerful stuff. But again, you're playing in blue, you're playing in card draw colors. It just works. Yeah. Uh, Grixis, Grixis decks that allow you to play like an asshole are probably the best. Like, you're like, I don't care, and you're just doing things. Yep. All right. Well, we've definitely, I think, gotten two, um, two episodes worth of value in here, so I hope the listeners out there really enjoyed their special, special double feature that hopefully wasn't overly disappointing like actual double feature from, from Wizards. But anyway, uh, yeah, I want to thank you, Skylar, for taking the time. It's been awesome having you on the show. Awesome just talking about the that Tevish Crom deck of yours. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, inviting me, MJ. I'm happy we're able to do it. Uh, yeah. I love this deck. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no problem. And yeah, if you're interested in hearing any of the other Noah Brewer or CDH Deck Tech series stuff, you can find those and the rest of my podcast on the usual podcast outlets through Google's, Apple, Spotify, Player FM, Rockcast, Podcast, Overcast, Breaker, and a million others. I don't remember all of them. It's, there's too many, but if it's a major podcast outlet, you can probably find my stuff on there. You can also find my, me on Twitter at, at MTG in quarantine. I'd like to utilize this opportunity again to give another huge shout-out and thank you to all the awesome people who support me over at patreon.com slash mtgandquarantine. 
Huge round of thank yous to Mr. Big Vents, Anomaly, Nick S., Frugal Brutal, Jenna the Filthy MTG Casuals, and Coach J-Ro for supporting the show. If you'd like to help support the show and help me make more awesome content, head on over to patreon.com slash quarantine for more information. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, this double episode, in fact, of the MTG in Quarantine podcast. My name's MJ. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.